0: You're listening to the sermon podcast of Grace Reformed Church in Spring Hill, Tennessee. To learn more about us, visit our website at gracereformed.org. And now, today's sermon. The book of John, actually, we're going to be in a couple of places in John, but we're going to continue our time in John chapter 19. For those of you that are visiting, we have been going through the book of John since we started our church plant three years ago. And we will eventually get through it. We're going to cover a large section today, actually 15 verses. So uh, we will be uh, making progress. So I want to pick up a little bit of where we were last week. It's really hard to understand the Passion Week when Christ is uh, on His way to the cross. There's so much that's going on. We tend to emphasize the brutality of Christ's death, which is very important to do so. But we miss why it was so significant. And so we're going to be looking at the backstory of really the heart behind the crucifixion. And this is what we began doing last week, and we're going to pick up uh, where we left off if we're going to fully understand what's going on, why John wrote he, what he wrote in chapter 19. So as a reminder, the Sanhedrin, historically, if you don't know what this is, for those of you who are visiting, uh, was Jewish elders commissioned by the Roman government to sit as acting judges over the nation of Israel. And this becomes very important because it helps you understand why they say what they do about Jesus. So these 70 men were to rule the people concerning any religious or civil issues among the people. So the Sanhedrin had one mission in mind. And you, we learn this throughout the entire story of John, that one mission is to maintain power at all costs. So these Jewish elders should have been leading the charge and welcoming Jesus, this Messiah, the one to whom the they would go and hear the prophecies read every uh every Sabbath day in the temple. But instead, they were maintaining what power they had. And they were more concerned about possibly losing it. And this is why they end up wanting to kill him. Uh, look with me in even uh, John chapter 11 real quick, just so you can start making some of these connections. John eleven forty eight. 48, it says this, if we let him go on like this, doing these miracles, drawing this massive crowd, he had already fed 5,000 people, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. You can see the Sanhedrin's fear the leaders, the, the the leaders of the Jewish people. So this is the first part of understanding why Jesus was crucified by the Romans. They figured if they could get the Romans to kill him, Jesus is out of the way and they won't lose power. But there's a second group, of, as we mentioned last week, of people that were really guilty of Jesus's death as well. And this is the Jews themselves because they hated Jesus. As weird as this sounds, this is what we learned from John 19. Well, turn with me to back to John chapter 6. Jesus proved he was the chosen one of God, the anointed one to be their Messiah. How did, how did he do this? By feeding the 5,000. And so it, right after this, the people's hearts are moved and they definitely want to rush Jesus in to be this deliverer, this Messiah. But there's a different kind of Messiah that they want to look at me at verse 14. It says this, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this indeed, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. This was the king they were waiting for, as John was pointing out, the one who could protect them, feed them, and most importantly, restore the nation. They wanted to be freed from the Roman oppression. So it says they rushed upon Jesus to inaugurate the system. Later in the chapter, Jesus engages these people about why he has come to this earth and why, why he had to remove himself from their presence. It was not to save them from the Roman impression, but it was to save those whom the Father had given him. Not to rescue them from their hunger enslavement, but to rescue them from their sins. So Jesus says to them, if you believe in me, you will you will have life beyond this life. He's always pointing to beyond this life. He uses the phrase eternal life. And then he gave them an illustration. He says, eat my body and drink my blood and you will live forever. Which, of course, these uh, people misunderstand the word picture of the Old Testament prophecy. And this is where we pick up in verse 52. Look at John six fifty-two. The, Jew, the Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat of the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, will live because of me. He's just pretty, just driving this down in, right? This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread, his body will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Here is the significance of the statement from Jesus. He just fed 5,000 people and he did it by performing a miracle. Like the miracle in the wilderness of the manna being provided by who? God. And who is Jesus claiming to be? God. So he pointed out to those who eat this miraculous bread, this wonderful gift from God, you're still going to die. But if you look past the gift to what? The giver of the gift. The one who can provide eternal life then God will save you. Look at verse 60. When many of his disciples heard this, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the son of man ascending to where he was before? It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I have told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted by him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Jesus said to the twelve, Do you? Want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, life beyond this life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So you can see the connection that Jesus is making. They're wanting a temporal kingdom now. And Jesus is saying, oh, you have missed it. I am not providing you manna from heaven to sustain your sinful bodies. I'm providing you life to give you life beyond life, eternal life. So when we fast forward the VHS, for those who grew up in the eighties to chapter 18, we see the fulfillment of Jesus statement about being betrayed. And it's in the story of Barabbas. Barabbas, a well-known Jewish insurrectionist had become a hero amongst the Jews. Now, As a review, Barabbas' full name is actually Jesus Bar-Abbas, meaning Yeshua, Son, Bar, of the Father, Abba. The people, when offered by Pilate, either Yeshua, Son of the Father, or the one called Christ as put in Matthew, they chose their Messiah in loud, unison form. They chose their warrior, the one who was fighting to set them free, Yeshua Barabbas. And as I stated last week, Jesus was crucified, which was, crucifixion was the form given for those who were insurrectionists against Rome. Jesus was crucified by the Romans. He took the very cross intended for Barabbas. And Barabbas was set free to the people as Messiah, as the one loved by the Father. This is what we call substitution. And God orchestrated every movement of the scene. So we would not only be saved by Christ, but we would understood that we were saved because of what God had instigated, or I would say had orchestrated sovereignly through all of this pain and suffering. So that was chapter 18. This is chapter 19. So when the, uh, the, the expected Messiah who they believed, would be their political failure now failed. He's no longer going to save them from the Jews. What do they want to do with him? They wanted to crucify him for his failures. Look at verse one of chapter 19. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, which is a it's a Roman tradition that we're not going to get into this morning. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Let me read to this commentator I found helpful. Pilate is speaking with dripping irony. He is the man you find so dangerous. Sorry, here is the man you find so dangerous and threatening. Can you not see he is harmless and somewhat ridiculous? If the governor is thereby mocking Jesus, he is ridiculing the Jewish authorities with no less venom. But the evangelist John records the event with still deeper irony. Here indeed is the man, the word made flesh. One of the names Jesus gave himself while on Earth is the Son of Man, which is a reference to Daniel chapter nine. And I think, or sorry, Daniel chapter seven. And I think it's important for me to read this to you because you'll understand the significance of the irony of everything that's going on. That God is absolutely making sure that what is being said is a reflection of His control, not Pilate's or the people. Daniel seven thirteen says this. I saw in the night vision, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, and he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and kingdom, that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And Pilate, having no idea what he's saying, stands up and says, Behold, the man. The statement could not be more true. He really was the king of all dominions. But they, in blindness, mocked him because they could not see. Jesus' dominion will be forever, and his kingdom will not be destroyed. But these people cannot hear the words of Jesus as he has said back in John 6 because they are blind by their own sin. Pilate thought that this mockery would be enough to appease these people. Okay, we know. I know you don't like this man. We have exposed his weakness by whipping him. We have dressed him in kingly garb. Now take him away. Let's be done with this. But the people hated him so much they wanted to kill him. In other words, they wanted to kill the God they hated. Look at verse 6. When the chief priest and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him. Crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourself and crucify him. For I have found no guilt in him. How many times have he said this? At least three so far. The Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. Well, Jesus' mission was accomplished. He made sure they understood his claim, I am God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him. I would love to see the tone by which Jesus said this. You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Now think about the irony of a man standing there who is bleeding from head to toe and his face swollen. And he has the audacity to tell him, you have nothing over me nothing. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. A pilot feeling the weight of what's going on tries to threaten Jesus. You better speak up. And Jesus basically says, you are a puppet in the hands of God. You cannot do anything to me unless God has allowed it. And this is what he wants. This is what my father has, according to Acts 2 and Acts 4 predetermined before the foundations of the world that should take place. Verse 12, from then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the stone pavement and in Aramaic, Gabatha. Now, it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, behold, your king, they cried out. Away with him, away with him, crucify him, Pilate said to them. Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. They made their intentions known. They only were looking for what? an earthly king, a king to satisfy their needs now. Now, we should not be surprised by what is happening here. This has been a pattern for Israel from the moment God redeemed them from Egypt. What did they do when Moses is up on the mountain and they get bored? They create for them an idol out of what? Gold, a golden calf to worship it. Or when they're wandering in the desert and they're eating magical food from the ground, And they get tired of it, and, Lord, can we not have meat? Or they finally make it into the promised land. They live in peace and harmony and comfort. What do they do? They go back into their closets and pull out their idols from Egypt and begin to worship false gods once again. And the story goes on and on. The sinfulness of the human heart can turn the unfathomable miracles of God into something we deserve, and instead of seeing them as grace from God. This is what our heart does. We assume God is obligated to make us happy and to satisfy us. He is good and all-powerful. Why wouldn't he want to treat us in this way? And we even misinterpret Scripture to prove these points. Well, the world hasn't changed in 2,000 years. Today, people assume that God exists to help them in their pursuit of happiness and peace. When God fails them, they hate him. And spiritually speaking, they crucify him. They cut him out. They run to other gods, money, sex, food, alcohol, or fame. Today, many Christians are confused on what God is even doing in this world. They hear that God desires to bless them and protect them, but their lives do not match this promise at all. This is because they are believing the same lie the Jews have believed. The lie from Satan that Jesus is but a genie who fulfilled their wishes. Of course, it's not that obvious. It's definitely more believable. Now, why would that be so bad? It's a brilliant lie from Satan. Why can't God just protect us now? Give us what we need now. Keep us from harm. This is what makes Satan, the father of all lies, a cunning lion waiting to devour our faith. Our greatest problem is not pain or disease or suffering, but we think it is. Our greatest problem is our sin. And Satan wants to distract us from the real problem and have us focus on what I would say are the symptoms of our sin. Not everyone Jesus encountered, thankfully, saw him as their political savior, as their genie. Many saw Him for who He was, their Redeemer. Throughout the Gospels, we meet several people, and when they see Jesus, they cling to Him in desperation. Their sin has crushed them to the point that they have only one hope in this Son of Man, the Man who shall save them from their sins, the Man who will cleanse them. Turn quickly with me to Luke chapter 18. Jesus points out two differences between those who see him as redeemer versus those who see him as their political leader. This is why Jesus is always destroying the self-righteous who assume they don't need Jesus as savior. They need him as the one who can enact and reinstate their nation. Look at verse 9. Dealing with the Pharisees, self-righteous, he also told his parable. To some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners and just adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted, not by their righteousness, but by whose? Christ's. So who did Jesus have compassion on? Sinners jesus does not say that he has come to rescue the righteous from the debaucherous world i'm sorry you have to live in this crazy place i'm going to take you out no but he seeks and saves the lost the abandoned the sinner as the self-righteous man called them one of my favorite stories if you turn to chapter seven one of my favorite stories in all of the bible is the prostitute who washes the feet of jesus This woman knew she did not need a king to protect her, but a savior to cleanse her. Look at verse 44. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. Did not show me with respect, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. From the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. She knew who Jesus was her salvation, her salvation. So who are the ones running to the feet of Jesus? Those who have lost everything and have nothing to gain from this world. Nothing left. This world has destroyed any form of hope. Nothing else makes sense but a Savior who will rescue them from this body of death, to quote Paul from Romans 7. And as Peter powerfully stated in John six sixty eight, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. The intentions of God have always been clear to save us from this world, not to protect us within it. We have made the horrendous mistake of combining the two promises, the already and not yet. We have already been saved from the judgment of our sin. That is what we received this morning as a reminder as we confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us of them. We have received it already. But we have not yet been transferred home. Somehow we make the mistake assuming this is home. This world is not our home. This is why Jesus said time and time again, my kingdom is what? Not of this world. Recently, I have been contemplating the pain and suffering I see in this world. And it is, it's been weighing on me in ways I've I've probably never really felt before. So many in our little congregation are suffering on levels that, that really I've never experienced before. It's, it's truly heartbreaking to watch many of you suffer. And as, as a pastor, I <clears throat> I often feel useless. Uh, you come to me for help, and I have nothing for you. I can't fix your pain. I can't bring loved ones back from the dead. I, I can't I can't remove depression or fix infertility. I can't restore a broken marriage or remove cancer. Uh, and the list goes on. I feel very helpless. I try to make sense of a loving God in pain. It has driven many pastors and theologians mad, and some away from even the faith. I recently read um, C.S. Lewis's book on the problem of pain. It drove him mad. So mad he wouldn't even put his name on the book. He was too afraid you would be critical of him. It wasn't until he died he put his name on it. But I have found comfort in recent days as I look back over and over again to the Gospels. There is one truth that the Word shines the brightest as I read it. This world is clearly cursed, and it is not our home. The promise given to us by the Messiah is that he has cleansed us from our insurrection against the Father, and we now are free to enter into his kingdom. The promise is we are just simply waiting for the Messiah to rescue the rest of our family. Then we'll go home. Every time I see pain and suffering, it's a reminder to me that this world is not my home, and it never can be. I am being rescued from not only my sin, but also this sinful world. This is why the New Testament tells us to not love this world or anything in the world. This world has nothing to offer us that we don't already have in Christ. Pain and suffering become harder for me to endure when I allow this world to find a place in my heart. When I sit With you now, which I will some of you this week, I look into your eyes and I see that I am not home, that we are not home. This is not home. But we are left here to accomplish something that the Father has given us, this mission. And when this mission is finished, then we'll go home. But this mission is clearly not over. As the book of Revelation perfectly depicts it, we are at war. It's a cosmic battle that we are facing right now. When this war, this spiritual war that is over, Jesus, the victor, will come back, and he will take us home to live, and I will say truly live forever. Talking with Jane last night, we were talking about living versus dying, and I said, oh, trust me, right now we are only dying. Do not try and tell me this is living. Because if it is, then what hope is there? But tell me that living with Christ without sin, now that's living. And that's what I long for. This is why we must always keep a light grip on the things of this world. We are so afraid of losing things. And the Father is here saying, you have lost nothing for you have gained everything. This quote from Augustine in the City of God, he said, God is always trying to give things to us, but our hands are too full to receive them. We are grabbing onto things in this world that don't matter. They're going to perish. And the good gifts we need to sustain us and to give us strength, there's no room for them in our lives. I would also say we often see these gifts of grace coming to us and we mistake the gift as somehow of being the purpose of life. Hebrews 12 says, following, I'll just quote it, is that we are laying aside every weight and the sin that easily, what clings to us? We are laying aside anything that's going to hold us back from what? Changing a nation. What is he saying? Clinging on to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. The only thing that matters to get us from here to home. Now, if you've been around me long enough to know, I am not all doom and gloom. I like to have fun. And I enjoy a lot that this world has to offer. I love this quote from C.S. Lewis because I think it's helpful. He says this, Our Father refreshes us on the journey with some pleasant ends, but will not encourage us to mistake them for home. I like to call them mere appetizers. There's much to enjoy in this world. I did this morning as I watched the sun come up. It was beautiful. But then I reminded when my stomach growled that I'm still longing. I want to remind all of us that pain is the constant reminder that this world is not home and it will never be. I think probably the best quote in all of his book on pain is this. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. What is he shouting? What is it that we're hearing from God? Not yet, my child. Not yet, soon, but not yet. There's still work to be done. So our mission to each other and the world around us is to help the world see that in this desperate need of Jesus, our Redeemer is who we are pursuing, not a temporal healer or a hero or some political leader. We don't need Jesus to rescue America. We need Jesus to rescue us from our insurrection against God. God created this world with the intentions that we would love Him, and it's the one thing the whole world doesn't do. They are guilty of it. So what do we do in turn to this loving and gracious and patient God? We have killed him because we hate him. And then we question his goodness when he allows sin to have its way with us. And so, church, the only thing that makes sense to me about sin and pain and suffering is this. God never promised to remove it. He only promised that he would give you everything you needed to endure it. Sin is the constant reminder that we don't live in the presence of God. It is our hope. As God came to the flesh and stood behind and in front of us to remind us that he will take us back home in the flesh with him. And every time you see sin and pain and suffering and disaster, you need to be reminded of one simple thing. This is a universe where God's holiness does not live. And one day we will live in a universe where it does. So church, this is what makes what we do so important. We are journeying together and it is a hard journey. It is so hard to think that every day I have to wake up and face pain and suffering and disappointment and loss. One more day. And as I said to our men, Last Wednesday at Men's Bible Study, we wake up to fight one more day, but I know I can fight because I have brothers next to me who will hold me, who will point me to Christ, who will not let me fall by the wayside. And when I am entangled in sin, as Galatians 6.1 says, they will go to me with a spirit of gentleness and restore me and point me back to my hope. Sin is when our eyes get on this world and we are grasping for that which will perish. And the gospel says, oh, it is far greater than that. Keep your focus on Christ. So every Sunday, we point to the table and we look to the table. Because it is that constant reminder that by His blood and by His body, we shall live. So we will do that again this week. We have received grace from God, from His Word. We will receive grace from God through the Word tasted and seen in the table. And for those of us who have been baptized, we will remember our baptism. We will remember that we have been buried in the likeness of his flesh and raised in the likeness of his resurrection. And we are now one with him because of his spirit in us. We cling to that as we head straight into a difficult situation called life. And we will look to see who we can rescue and join with us. So many who are confused, who are hurt, and who are lost. And you have everything you need to help them. It's called the gospel and love. Thanks for listening to the sermon podcast of Grace Reformed Church in Spring Hill, Tennessee, where everyone is in equal need of grace. To plan a visit or to learn more about us, visit our website at gracereformed.org.